Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. And we continue to do that time and time again. As I, I said this in uh, a couple of past episodes, actually, I say it more than once. My co-founder, Elvin Freitas, has now booked me out every day podcasting at 12 noon Central Standard Time through now the end of February, beginning of March. Uh, we've got a lot of people to talk to. We take no breaks here. We keep it going. Um, and uh, we're hoping to see you all on the conference circuit uh, at the beginning of next year in 2023, because we have a couple live events we're going to be at. Uh, more to come. Uh, but I want to get right to it, because we got a very special guest with us. And I'm bringing back one of my very special guest co-hosts. He, in fact, has an Edup Experience co-host mug, which you which I give out sparingly, which means you've come to co-host just a few times. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, that was the wrong button. Let me get it right. He's John Farrar. He's the director of education at Google. That that button, that incorrect button, John, that was really a mistake. It is labeled John, that button. Why, why, do, why do I feel like you say that to all the co-hosts? Well, um, John, you know, maybe I do, maybe I don't. You'll have to tune in to future episodes of the Edup Experience to find out. Well, welcome it. back, man. Glad to have you with us. 520 episodes is a lot to pour through, uh, pour through Joe. So congrats to you and the team on that. Thanks for having us back. We appreciate it. It's always good to be part of these conversations and super excited about the one we've got today. Same here. And of course, we thank Google for being a partner of the Edup experience. Uh, it's been a great relationship and we appreciate you. And uh, uh, we're going to have a good old Texas conversation today, ladies and gentlemen, with our guest, special guest. Here he is. He is the Chancellor of the University of Texas System. He is J.B. Milliken. What's happening, sir? How are you? I'm great, thank you. Things are great in Austin. I'd like to have that applause soundtrack to use for all of my meetings in-house. So. No worries. We're, gonna, we're just going to bring it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put your name on it, and I'm going to send the file to you. There you go. Well, we're, we're so honored to have you with us today. Of course, the University of Texas System, massive, 240-something thousand students, 100,000 medical employees, uh, what, uh, eight academic institutions, five uh, health institutions or somewhere in there is the split. Massive undertaking. Um, you have an extreme uh, and deep background in higher education, which we'll get to in a minute, but I'm just going to knock, I'm going to just hit you with a, I'm going to come right up to bat and hit you with a question. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. It's it's not an easy one, but it is an interesting one, and I want to get it out first, but so don't forget. So you know, um, higher ed doesn't have a reputation for moving very quickly in general, right? It's a slow. We have a reputation for moving slow. Lots of committees, lots of shared governance, lots of this and that. When you have a system like University of Texas, one that is uh, deep into research and academic outcomes and innovation. How fast can you move these institutions under your umbrella to innovate? Or is innovation stifled at certain levels? What does that look like from a strategic standpoint and how you move this enterprise forward? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I think that uh, higher education um, probably surprised the, the world uh, in 2020. Um, you know, in, in uh, February of, of 2020, 
Um, fewer than 20% of our faculty had ever taught a course online. Uh, fewer than 40% of our students system-wide had ever taken one online course. Yikes! By the end of March, the number was 100%. And by the end of that academic year, uh, we had 5% higher graduation uh, than we did the year before. So while nobody will accuse colleges and universities of perfecting online education by March of 2020, I mean, putting my lecture uh, on Zoom is not the, the, the optimal use of educational technology, but they did pivot in two weeks' time and allowed students to persist, uh, to graduate, uh, and to, to be successful. So, you know, that's a, when we need to, we can move pretty quickly. So, I'm, I, you know, that's, that's my opening salvo. Uh, you could probably find some examples where we didn't move that quickly, uh, but you mentioned uh, innovation. I would say this is another area where you need to move quickly uh, in the marketplace. And a couple of examples uh, that always startle me, and I go back to my tech people and say, is this right? Because it's hard <laughs> for me to believe. There's a new startup company uh, every two weeks out of the UT system. There's a new innovation disclosed every 12 hours. There's a new patent granted every one and a half days. Uh, and every UT institution executes or a license or uh, uh, contract each day. So um, in that space uh, where we are uh, leaders with three and a half billion dollars of external research funding, uh, we move pretty quickly. And then how do you, before I pass to John, because I swear he's going to butt the microphone off if I keep going and not bring him in. Um, but you talked about COVID and the higher ed institutions, many of the presidents that we talked to talk about that, you know, it's a bit catalyst for change and we were able to move this forward, move that forward. And the, the uh, agility that we had internally as a consequence of COVID, one of the, the only positive things that come out of it for our industry was the ability to move faster to serve students rather than looking so internally. How do you maintain that? How do you prevent the elasticity of going back to what's comfortable? Right, because we all do that. We all want to revert back to some level of normal, and normal can be comfortable for for us, or at least it has a connotation of being comfortable. And in higher ed terms, that can mean, I don't know, less innovative for the student, or less for the student, or less serving of the student, and more internal for the institution. It's been an ongoing conversation throughout higher ed. How do you keep that top of mind, that momentum, that change, that innovation amongst the staff and the faculty and all the people that you lead? Yeah. Well, there's so many um, responses to that question running through my head, and we're all watching in real time how every industry is having to deal with these issues. Uh, you know, I, I hope you know we're getting close to post-COVID, uh, and we yep. can refer to it that way. But um, you know, we read every day in the in the newspapers about whether employees are going to come back, whether they're going to demand some uh, level of remote work or entirely remote um, because their lifestyle changed and they and they liked it. Uh, we read about productivity going up with remote work. We read about it um, uh, going down. We're still learning a great deal. Every industry and higher ed is no exception. Uh, so. You know, I think um, we're never going back to exactly where we were before March uh, of 2020. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that, that we do a lot of, we have seven medical schools at the University of Texas system. And, you know, we train most healthcare workers in the state. 
um, prior to- Amazing. Yeah, isn't it? So in uh, 2019, we had under a thousand telehealth appointments from all of our clinics and hospitals uh, across the system, under a thousand. In 2020, we had over a million telehealth visits. Um, people liked it. Uh, they didn't have to be in traffic. They didn't have to sit in a waiting room with a bunch of sick people uh, for an appointment. So there are a lot of reasons why we need to continue to take advantage of this, both in the provision of healthcare and uh, the delivery of education. And I, I know we'll talk about that a little bit because it's uh, top of mind for me and one of the strategies that we have to deal with the rapid growth in Texas. I love it. John, do you want to, do you have any questions? <laughs> well, yeah, oh, sorry. So just, sorry <laughs> yeah, thanks for letting me. All right, go ahead. Um, but you, you mentioned growth, JB, and I, I guess I'll, I'll hit on that. Look, you've had huge roles at the University of Nebraska, um, North Carolina, served as, um, as the head of the CUNY system for, for New York. You're a non-native, from what I understand, for Texas. Bringing all that experience now to Texas for a state that I think I heard in an interview you mentioned, some people are calling for the population to double, uh, you know, in the at least foreseeable future. Um, how is all that experience shaping like how you are embracing what is lightning fast growth of a population that also, to your point, it has changing needs at the higher ed level. You know, I, I've got other questions for you on how that might evolve, but I, I want to hear like how your experience is now shaping how you're trying to shape this system that's serving way more people than it was just not that long ago. Yeah. So the the state demographer has uh, has uh, projected that the population of Texas, which is 30 million, may double in 30 years. So. We're talking about a population significantly larger than, than California if current trends continue, which current trends involve a lot of Californians moving to Texas. So uh, that's part of the of the growth. Oh, I've yeah. I've been a proselytizer for uh, online education for 20 years. Uh, yeah, I, this will seem uh, unreal to some of uh, the younger listeners, but I taught uh, an online a doctoral seminar in 1998 um, using Lotus courseware. Um, I, I'm not sure that's widely uh, used today. So <laughs> since that time, I like I'm it. interested in this. And I think one of the things that COVID did is demonstrate that um, we could do it if we needed to. You know, I met with a group of distinguished uh, faculty um, who are recognized at the University of Texas for their work in the classroom. And most of these faculty uh, are used to having 20 people in a class, a rich uh, personal um, uh, discussion, and they loved it. And they couldn't wait to get back. This was during COVID. But what these people told me, and a number of senior faculty told me, is that it'll never be the same. They will They have learned what they can do with educational technology now because they needed to, and they are going to use it in their courses from now on in one way or another. So I think that's a, you know, you look for positives in what was a pretty negative situation for uh, a couple of years. And I think there are a number of them in education and in healthcare. Yeah, 100%. I, um... The son of a uh, recently retired college professor at Central Michigan, uh, 
who had uh, technology thrust upon him, my father, who's in their psychology department. Um, and it was interesting. He's definitely not tech savvy. My mother has to uh, function as in-house IT for him. But to your point, found himself really enjoying it. Um, and he's got his own private practice. He's seeing more clients now in different states and feels like he can help more people than ever before. I'm, uh, I'm very curious to hear, maybe you expand on like, how, how do you see online evolving to maybe liberate some of this instruction, great faculty into different corners of your state, maybe around the country? And then maybe even specifically adding on to that, like the, this wave of credentialing, which also can be delivered in a bunch of different ways. How is UT seeing the modality, also the rise in demand of different forms of education that could end up, I guess, growing the higher ed category to some degree? So let me, um, let me frame this uh, a, a little bit and then respond to that. So this is the way I'd frame it is to go back to the discussion of growth doubling in size. You know, our educational attainment rates in Texas are nothing to brag about. Uh, last time I looked, they're in the mid-30s among 50 states. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's one thing. And health outcomes are nothing to brag about in, in many parts of the state. So how are we going to um, improve those numbers today and, and improve them uh, in the future when it's going to become much more challenging with the growth? And so we're going to need some interventions here that um, wouldn't necessarily happen on the natural. And I, I think there are three main ways that we address that growth and expand education uh, across a, a huge state. Uh, one is I think we need more college and high school. Uh, we need to, I mean, early, early college high schools are, uh, they work, uh, they're a great opportunity. 100% uh, of the people who graduate uh, from an early college high school with a couple of years of college credit under their belt are going to graduate from college. Yes. Yes. So that's number one. Uh, number two, we're going to need more online. Um, you know, we double in size in Texas. We are not going to create, you know, 13 more UT campuses. And that isn't going to be replicated by the other systems in the state. Just can't do it. These are expensive. Uh, and there's a huge investment and they take time to develop. So a lot of this to be nimble uh, and to expand education every corner of the state is gonna be done with online. And the third uh, strategy, and you mentioned this, is credentialing. More uh, short-term courses that lead to a certificate or a credential, you know, might be a 12-week boot camp in cybersecurity that leads to an entry-level job. Uh, there, so I see this as having three dimensions. One is some of the things we're working with Google on, which is embedding a credential within the undergraduate experience. So a student can leave uh, with a humanities degree, but with a credential in coding or in project management or some other area that uh, makes them much more attractive in the marketplace. Yeah. The second is for... Um, the millions of people in this country who have some credit and no degree. And we have not been very successful in getting them to finish that uh, degree, get that credential that they need to get a bump in the, in the job market. I think no, sir. credentials are really an important strategy there. And the third is for our own graduates. I mean, we know that people are going to change jobs many times during their career now. Your father, Central Michigan, probably didn't change his job too often in the last 30 years or so. But 
student graduates today are going to have to. And we want them coming back to their alma mater and getting that retooling, that upskilling that they need for the for the next uh, promotion. And that's going to be done with these short short uh, courses, credentials, and certificates. You know, it's, John, let me just jump in real fast. Because, uh, and, and you know, John and JB probably don't, but I'm writing a book. I'm almost done with it called Commencement at the Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education. And we're using insights from the 100, first 100 presidents that we interviewed. And one of the one of the really interesting themes that comes up is we're one of the only industries that doesn't think of return customers. If you sell, if you sell a product, you want that customer to return and there's loyalty and there's you brand loyalty. We, it's a, we've always thought of higher ed as a one and done. And then maybe you come back for this. We've never reached back to go down to say, okay, these short-term credentials could be part of a longer lifelong pipeline, lifelong learning pipeline where there's more ins and outs and you have returned customers because that's where your brand equity is built. That's where that's people want to, you know, it's like, I always say it's like hotels. I, you know, for anybody that travels, I, I traveled for 14 years, half the time. I stay in Marriott. That's just where I stay. If you try to put me anywhere else, I'm going to say, is there a Marriott close by? I don't know why. I just like them. By, by the way, I do get a free breakfast wherever I stay. So that kind of matters. You know, it's the same thing for higher ed. We haven't looked at it that way, though, that if I'm going to come back, I'm going to be loyal to the place that sent me out with this value of ed education in the first place. It sounds like you're looking at things in that way where you want to be there no matter where the journey takes the student. Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say is I think we're going to end this podcast because I didn't know that I wasn't going to get to be in this book. I thought that was all well, part of the deal. <clears throat> or maybe, uh, maybe you'll do a supplement to it. We are talking about version two for the second 100 presidents. And you're in the second 100, like 180 something. Yeah, so there you go. Well, that's about where I belong. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, we're, we're talking about a kind of model like a subscription service that you would continue. Um, and, and frankly, this, as you suggest, um, the brand is important. Um, loyalty to an alma mater. I mean, we, we spend a great deal of time cultivating our alumni uh, and prospective and actual donors. Um, you know, that's one thing we've been pretty good at. Uh, we haven't been as good at engaging people throughout their career in the educational enterprise. And that's what we need to do. And I think this whole, you know, this, this, this whole credentialing and certificate uh, movement, uh, plus the obvious need for people to retool throughout their career to continue to, to grow um, and to, to get that next job. Um, I, I, this is, I think this is a great opportunity for higher ed. And it is a necessary thing for our graduates. Um, John, hold on one more. And then I promise, I promise I'm going to pass it back. There, you have a responsibility, uh, Chancellor, and you know what it is. And, and it's a big part of, of um, your strategic plan and the way you look forward. And that's an incredibly fast growing Hispanic population that has to be served in the state of Texas. And that, that, um, the, the, the lifelong learning pipeline with the different in and out periods is going to matter a lot to people who um, are from disadvantaged backgrounds or underserved or lower, uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds, lower economic quartile and so on. And that, but, but if, you know, and the Hispanic population in Texas is expected to grow like 71% over the next 25 years or something like that, that takes a whole nother infrastructure. It takes a whole 
focus build out of different types of student services that have to go at scale with serving that population. Is that on your mind and something that you guys are, uh, I'm, I know the answer is probably yes, but how is that on your mind and how do you go through the blocking and tackling, so to speak, as that population grows and you serve more of the Hispanic population? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And it is something that is at the top of mind all the time. Last week, we had our senior team from the system and a number of our presidents in Washington for meetings with the Seal of Excellencia, which a number of our institutions have received for their um, leading work in addressing the Hispanic population in Texas. Um, we have uh, also within the last month uh, helped launch uh, a set of 20 uh, Hispanic-serving research universities. Amazing! And our president of our University of Texas at El Paso, Heather Wilson, is the chair of that group, but it includes a number of large universities in the country like UT Austin and Texas A&M University are members. The goal of that uh, group of research universities is to dramatically increase the pipeline of doctoral candidates who are Hispanic. And second, to dramatically increase the number of faculty in the marketplace who are Hispanic, so that our institutions and all other institutions can do a better job of diversifying uh, their, their faculty uh, and working with uh, students from all backgrounds. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge, these are two I think uh, really important efforts, and there are so many uh, more. I'll give you one example. Um, you know, my president at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley says, "You know, we're not a Hispanic-serving university. We are a Hispanic university. We're 95% uh, Hispanic." Um, they have been off able through a program that I will discuss if I have time uh, in a bit to offer um, free tuition and mandatory fees to every student at UT uh, RGV uh, from a family uh, with an income of $125,000 or less. It has been uh, dramatic in terms of increasing uh, enrollment, uh, but it's also uh, a, a terrific way of expanding access to uh, a population and I would say about 95% of their undergraduates qualify for the program. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. Wow. That's pretty incredible. John, I have one more. I'm so sorry. No, I'm just kidding, buddy. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I'll keep you there, JB, for a second in terms of um, some of these populations and, and how they're serving. You, you hit on the high school dynamic uh, a little bit in terms of what, what can be done to within high school to advance um, you know, higher ed learning and therefore increase preponderance of graduation. Um, We've seen some examples, and you, you all are, are Grow with Google partners. Grow with Google recently launched um, a program in Anaheim. We're integrating some of these certs for, for high schools as well. I, I guess, how do you see that evolving at the high school level? How do you think universities can participate in accelerating some of that? I think that part is very intriguing. We'd love to get your thoughts on what we can do 
maybe as a combination of higher ed and corporate America to, to help on that front. You want me to help with Google's sales strategy? <laughs> and this is just this is just to, to get people into jobs, but yes, always, always, the answer well, is yes. I love yeah, the honesty here on the Edip Experience podcast. Love it. We're we're always definitely uh, we're definitely uh, and enthusiastically partnering with with Google and Coursera on offering uh, career uh, certificates. Um, and I do think that there is a there there's um, a real need for doing the same kinds of things in high schools across the the country. So uh, you know we have some models today for how we uh, provide uh, uh, courses in high school of all kinds, a dual credit, um, which exists in some form or fashion in every state in the country. Um, the early college high school that I mentioned uh, earlier, where I think we could embed uh, these uh, same kind of certificate programs in uh, in those programs, but I also think it can be done independent of of higher ed, and I and I'm sure you're you're doing that. And um, but I think there are ways for us to to do it together and independently. On the um, uh... Going back to the lifetime value topic, which you know I find fascinating, and uh, was writing down your quotes as you were talking about like getting people in your case UT degrees, but also certified by all the you know leaders in their respective industries of uh, of focus. Um, how far off do you think we are from that day of like, all right, look, you you are going to be a UT grad, and you're going to get certified. I'm, I'm in marketing and sales, but you're going to get certified by you know, Facebook and Amazon and Google or whoever it is in your, in your area so that you're a ready to go out quickly. And then hopefully actually to your point, whatever that upskill is five years, 10 years out on your career journey, you're going to come back to Texas to get that um, because that cert is there also, but it's surrounded by the faculty to help you lead with that particular skill or present whatever the, you know, again, the success skill is around the hard skill that maybe the marketplace is espousing. Uh, maybe I'm trying to wish this into existence because I'm such a higher ed fan, but it does seem like there's an inevitable road to, to, that leads to that. Just want to get your perspective on how far are we from that? And I guess, what do universities need in order to, to you know, from their partners to, to enable it? Yeah. So I, I, I've thought for a, for a long time that, um, that we need to, to be a part of this effort to provide these short-term um, uh, credentials and certificates that uh, I watched in, in New York City where uh, private uh, providers were um, offering certificates uh, and credentials uh, for a limited, uh, for a short period of, of, uh, of time at high prices. And number one, um, I thought if, if there's a market for that and the college graduates are uh, pursuing it, that's a space we ought to be in. We're a trusted provider uh, of education and we have a brand that is valued. Um, and it, there ought to be places uh, where uh, graduates um, uh, and others, uh, even those without a degree, can go where they, for a moderate price, um, and uh, get a trusted provider to provide the credentials that they know will be validated in the workplace. 
a few months ago uh, as part of our Texas Credentials for the Future initiative that each of our undergraduate schools is participating in, we gathered a uh, hundred or so leading employers in Texas. Um, we had the CEOs of uh, AT&T, of Texas Instruments, Southwest Airlines, and others there, along with, with uh, HR um, leaders, uh, to talk really about this proposition, that we are ready and willing to offer these short-term credentials if you will validate them so that we can tell our students get this uh, credential, whether it's provided by Coursera or UT or somebody else. And when you go to apply for a job at Southwest Airlines, that will check the box for their requirements for entry level uh, employees in a particular area. And so there's, there's great receptivity to that because we're also inviting people to be a part of designing the curriculum and the requirements uh, for these credentials. So as we saw with COVID, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. We had to pivot. Here, if the private sector tells us um, and other employers tell us that we've got to have these kinds of skills, regardless of what major uh, the uh, prospective uh, employee comes from, then our students will demand it and we will provide it. So um, maybe one more question for me on this topic, John. I, I, I know you just your innovation summit, JB, a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, and it sounds like there were some, some exciting conversations that came out of that. Uh, I believe the theme was uh, educate, energize, connect. Um, anything that, uh, that um, I know you, you kicked off on a lot of the exciting things that are coming out of the UT system, but um, any, any thoughts and, and outcomes from that summit and how is that evolving going forward? Well, so, Texas, the university system, as, as well, you know, it was the case when I was in uh, North Carolina 20 years ago, uh, and then in uh, Nebraska and at CUNY. Um, you know, these are great centers of discovery uh, with enormous research enterprises supported by the federal government, state government, and, and uh, the private sector and others. Uh, the key though, which has not uh, always been unlocked the potential that they have, is how do we get that uh, innovation and that technology uh, that's developed moved to the, to the marketplace where there can be useful uh, products and processes that, uh, including in healthcare, that come from the research and innovation in our institutions. And that was the focus of the, of the summit that we had. So how do we take the friction out of faculty working uh, with the private sector? How do we take the friction out of faculty working with the administration to uh, advance uh, you know, the discoveries? Um, you know, that, that's something that everyone is engaged in now across the country and has been for some time. And you know, we've got places that are better at it than others, uh, but it's really important, I think, for unlocking the, the economic and uh, societal value of the research that's done at, at, at our research universities. Keep going, John. You got no, I know you got another one in there. No, I'm going to cede it back to you because right? then I get accused of 
hijacked me up. Thank you for handing me back to my podcast, John. I appreciate you so much. Uh, uh, JB, you know, just watching from, you know, higher ed is just this funny space that we all work in. And, um, you know, we talk about innovation. We talk about what the future looks like. Higher ed has done something so well for so many years. You can go look at the Clay Christensen theory of disruptive uh, innovation. It's, It's like born to prevent innovation because it's, it's it's systems that it has. As we look to the future, well, let, let me say this. The value of a college education has never been in question as much as it is today, right? There's a, now you could pick a camp, you can, you know, it, there's just a lot of conversation around, is a college degree of value? What value does it have anymore? Is there an ROI? Should it have an ROI? Should it be liberal arts or should it be direct to a job? There's just a lot more noise. And you think about who's hearing that noise. You think about the Hispanic population growing in the state of Texas hearing that. What, what should they be hearing? What do they need to hear um, to bring greater generational wealth to their families um, for uh, kids that have been told you're going to go to college because they have that uh, ability and that privilege that their parents are giving them to go to college. Is that a viable path for them? What is the value of a college degree, uh, JB? And we're going to quote you and put you all over social. No, we won't do that. Uh, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of work done uh, over the years about the value over a lifetime of a million dollars for a on average for a college graduate as opposed to a high school graduate, $20,000 a year. Um, you, you know, I, I am convinced that higher education is of, uh, has never been uh, more important than it is today. I, I would say that, you know, almost all the new jobs created require education beyond high school, almost 100% of them. So um, it may not be, and I think increasingly, and, and, and this is not a bad thing, it may not be a four-year a degree, it may be one of the short-term credentials we're talking about, or maybe a community college uh, two-year degree. Uh, I think there are a lot of different uh, pathways, uh, but I do think people need to pursue some education uh, beyond high school and have some credential uh, to show for that. Um, and I, you know, it's our job uh, to make sure that, that, that the value is recognized and that the opportunity is available. So let, let me just take this up to um, a, another step and get yeah. sort of mission uh, of American higher education. So I, I believe, and I suspect most of my colleagues do, that uh, talent is universal. Uh, without regard to zip code, uh, race or ethnicity, gender, uh, any kind of demographic slicing. But opportunity is clearly not universal. Uh, We know uh, when we see, just look at the top quintile of wealth versus the lowest quintile of wealth and how many are in college today. So I believe it's our job to match up that, uh, that talent with the opportunity. And this is uh, you know, the work of Raj Chetty a few years ago and other uh, economists, uh, which I think usefully shined a light on these uh, engines of social and economic mobility, those universities and colleges that are, that are taking students in the lower uh, quintiles of wealth in this country and graduating them and sending them uh, to the middle class. Um, that's, to me, at core, that's what our mission is. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that our institutions all offer 
promise programs that at a certain income level, every student gets uh, uh, tuition and mandatory fees waived. Is there more that we can do? Sure, and we're working on that. And uh, we're gonna try to take, uh, make it even more available. And uh, Joe, as you mentioned earlier, we need to do a lot more with the student success tools so that uh, we have more students persist and graduate uh, in a shorter period of time. So it's a, it's a combination of things, but first we gotta get them in the door. And second, we have to provide uh, the services that students today need uh, to be able to graduate in a timely uh, manner. I mean, one of the, there's been a lot of focus on student loans lately um, and, the, and the debt uh, in, in this country. I mean, if you look at just a kind of simple uh, uh, analysis that, you know, if you graduate in four years instead of five years, you've just cut 20% of the cost of, of college out. So it's in everyone's interest that we create an environment and the support and the financial assistance so that students can do that. Yeah, that's a, oh man, you bring up debt and debt forgiveness. It's such an important conversation because um, to add on to what you're saying, one of the little known facts about higher ed and it, depending on the school that you're at, students can borrow more than the cost of, of tuition, right? They can borrow and they, they can get funded well beyond putting themselves further in debt. So it's not always the school, the school has to provide what the student qualifies for. It's not like the school is able to limit and say, hey, look, you don't need one more cent than what it costs. Students who don't have money or who can gain dollars for living, whatever, take more, and and then it's harder to pay back as as you would in anything, right? You put too much money on your credit card, it's harder to pay back. The reason why loan forgiveness, uh, JB, and you see what you think about this is so difficult to get my my. This is my personal opinion that it's um, an unhealthy, you know. But besides, it does help some folks. There's no doubt about that, especially those that come from closed institutions, right? Those are the ones I feel worse bad for, where they were at a closed institution and they get their uh, loans forgiven. But the day after the policy was granted uh, and, and you know it was signed and gone through, somebody else took out too many loans. And the day after that, somebody else took out too many loans, and they're going to have trouble paying it back. That you can't solve a problem if you don't fix the front end of that funnel. Um, and it really falls on the institutions to do a lot of work on debt, for, uh, de debt uh, management and um, uh, uh, deterring uh, defaults and so on to prevent that from happening. Anyway, I'm ranting on a soapbox a little bit, but it's Band-Aid on a gushing wound. Yeah, so uh, within the past couple of years, the University of Texas system has put about $500 million into an endowment to support um, payment for uh, tuition and mandatory fees for students. Wonderful. Financial need. Um, and we need to do more of that. That's that's step one to reduce the debt. I mean, th there's a little bit of a, uh, a, a misnomer or misunderstanding uh, about um, college costs. And, and uh, I mean, tuition uh, is only one piece of it. So we talk about, you know, you, you get a, a scholarship to uh, defray the cost of tuition. There's room and board, which often isn't provided by the university. It's provided by private uh, actors. Uh, you know, there's transportation, there's, there's all kinds of other costs involved uh, at a time when you're typically not making a lot of money while you're uh, in college. So all of this needs to be managed. But the, the, the one thing I'd say about uh, uh, 
you know, debt and the problems that it uh, brings is that it really, uh, it, it really magnifies the importance of getting a credential. Because True. the people who are defaulting on debts are the people that don't have the credential by and large. And they aren't the people with the highest levels of debt. Um, they're, they're people that typically um, at lower levels of debt, but they got no income bump from a degree. And so uh, however much debt they have is too much debt. And so the, I, I believe the most important thing we can do um, to, to drive down default on debt and to make it manageable uh, for students as almost entire debt from the University of Texas system is, is determined by the, by the measurements of the, of the state coordinating board for higher education to be manageable, meaning that it's a percentage of, your, of the average income that is, that is manageable for, for young graduates. But we need to get them the credential. That's the most important thing we can do. JB, real, real quick there, and this will probably be my last one, because um, I'm a big fan of what you had to say earlier about <clears throat> universities being the key to moving socioeconomic class and enabling trajectories for individuals, families, etc. I guess as the lone representative of, of Silicon Valley and maybe the tech community, at least on this podcast, what, what can that community do to help uh, university systems leaders like yourselves to make sure that happens going forward and at an accelerated rate? Um, are the things that, you know, you and the rest of your leadership group think about that, you know, that you could provoke us on uh, to be better partners in that regard? Well, I mean, there's a, Google's an example, but there are uh, many other um, uh, companies in, in the tech space that are active partners uh, with higher education and, and those partners deliver some of the, the talent, some of the infrastructure and, and platforms that we um, can't replicate. And uh, so I think they're, they can be great partners uh, working with us in the delivery and in the, this expanded delivery that we've talked about, the online uh, and, uh, and in high schools and in other uh, the short-term uh, credentials. Um, so, you know, I, I would say the same thing I said to the employers that came to our, our summit on, on, uh, on credentials for the future, uh, and, and that is the more you can work with us to um, help design uh, and then validate uh, the credentials uh, that we are able to offer either in partnership or on our own, um, the, the better it is, uh, because that... Uh, we, 70%, the last poll I saw um, of uh, people surveyed in this country believe that the purpose of college is to get a better job. Now, you know, we can debate uh, the, uh, the public good. And there, I think there are a lot of other reasons uh, why college is valuable. Uh, but if 70% of your customers think that the purpose is to get a better job, then you better pay attention to that. And one of the ways I think that we can deliver on that expectation is by working more closely with the private sector. And that, I, I just, that we have to do that. Well, yeah, I think it's the, 
and also the, the employment on the back end, right? Taking those credentials for jobs. And um, it's good to see like there's more conversation around this and, and obvious evolution. So thanks. All right, Joe. Well, I know, J- uh, yeah, I know JB that you would want to, you'd prefer to stay on with us for the next hour, but uh, something tells me that uh, you have something to do. So I'm going to hit you with our last question. We'll close it out. And it's an easy one. You should be able to nail this one in 30 seconds or less. What do you see as the future of higher education? <laughs> I'm glad you did Attention. I just yeah. want to have this for dramatic effect before you answer. Attention. Okay, go. <laughs> Thank you for that that softball and and for a way to to sort of just wrap it up concisely at the end of the of the discussion, Joe. That was that was beautiful. Um, you know, higher education. Uh, as uh, uh, I don't remember whether it was you, Joe, or John, that mentioned. You know, I think you did, Joe, about under attack more. Uh, you yeah. know, it's a great paradox. It's it's under attack more in some circles, but I think it's never been more valuable. I think there is absolutely no question that you need to credential beyond high school to succeed uh, in America today. And so, and I, that's not going to change. You know, we are, we need to change though, and continue to evolve if we're going to deal with uh, the the, uh, the changing uh, job market, the changing economy, the need for education delivered in different ways, um, more rapidly, um, more upskilling because, uh, you know, we, the world is changing very, very quickly. So I would say Level up. higher education is going to be more nimble because it has to be. And I, but I think there's going to be always be uh, a, a hugely important role for higher education in this country. Well, there you have it, everybody who is listening, and there are many of you, and we appreciate it. You know him, you love him, you've heard him before. He's at Google, somewhere in California, Mountain View, California. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. My guest co-host today, he's John Farrar. He's Director of Education at Google. John, it's great to have you back on the mic, buddy. Thanks for having me. Sorry. I can't help it. I can't help it. Uh, John, we hope to talk to you soon, too. I think you're, you're coming up on some others, if I'm not mistaken. A couple so, lined up. Thanks for having yeah. me. And of uh, course... Yeah, no, go ahead. No, and JB, well, uh, our team's coming to Austin in a couple of weeks here. So looking forward to taking in the campus and, and uh, seeing some things that have been updated. I haven't been there in three years. So looking forward to getting to town. Great. Welcome. Well, I hope you guys have a great time without me. But, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, have it pour, get a cup of coffee, pour out a little bit for me uh, in remembrance when you two meet up. Of course, my guest today, uh, our guest, your guest, ladies and gentlemen, here he is. He's a chancellor of the University of Texas system. He's J.B. Milliken. And J.B., did you have a good Edup experience today on this podcast? I'm did you have a good Edup experience on this podcast today? Oh, I heard you. I was waiting for the special effect that was... Uh, oh, go, yeah. Hold on, hold on. There we go. I did, except for the part when I realized I wasn't going to be in the first edition of your book. So. Yeah, you know what? I was I was really hoping you'd bring that back up a second time uh, for the uh, audience here. I'm working on your book sales. Uh, uh, yes, you are, sir. And uh, we, we, we will make sure to slide you in there. Um, don't worry about that. These are this is a good interview. I, I will tell you that obviously you're leading one of the largest systems in the country. So what you have to say really matters. And uh, <clears throat> noted, noted here for the audience, J.B. Milliken will be in a future edition of the commencement uh, a book. Uh, we appreciate you, J.B. This has been a lot of fun. Um, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. You've just ed upped. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education.
by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing.